Thank you, worship team. They put a lot of work into that, and if you haven't, make sure that you give them your thanks as well as they lead us in music, as we worship God through song. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to Jonah. We'll be starting in Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. As we continue in our series on the minor prophets... Before we do that, let's pray. Father God, we just continue to praise and to worship you. Lord, we come together to refocus our hearts and our minds, to be reminded of who you are as we sing, as we pray, as we read your word, as we hear the preaching. And God, I just pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to what your word has to say. As we continue to worship you, Lord, I want to preach so that you are glorified, and I want to I want to speak of you and praise you and praise your name. And there's no giftings or ability that can do this on your own outside of your spirit. So Lord, by your spirit, help me to preach this sermon with what is needed. Use this sermon, God, for your glory, for the joy of your people, and the salvation of the lost. And amen. So as we are... Looking at Jonah, I'm quickly confronted with this reality. I'm Jonah. And if you're like, oh, I'm not Jonah, you're lying to yourself. You're Jonah too. And as I was talking with someone this week, it's been very confronting to some of the, the, the sins in my own life, my own attitudes. And I pray that God is using his word to convict you as well. And a godly convict, so a godly conviction is uh, not allowing you to stay and wallow in your despair, but to remind you of God's grace and that he, we thank God we're saved by his grace and not by works, but also that he continues to work in you to make you more like Christ as you study his word and submit to it. So we'll be in Jonah chapter 1 verse 17, and the word of the Lord says this, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around about my head. At the roots of the mountains I went down to the land whose, whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O oh Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pray regarding to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. 
This is the word of the Lord. So as we enter into verse 17, you think we we cannot hit verse 16 before? That's usually how numbers work. And at the end of verse 16, we come to this reality that Jonah has been thrown into the sea. And the story could really end there. There's no hope. Jonah has refused to repent of his sin. To the point that he would rather die than repent of it. We're all stubborn like that, by the way. We're all like that. But that's not where it ends. God would not have that. Not here. Not now. God is not done with Jonah. And God has ordained a plan for Jonah to do something as well. So in this passage, in this, in this book, God is calling Jonah back to do two things. A, to bring him back to God himself into a right relationship, but also to go do what he told him to do back in verse 1 of chapter 1. It's, it's such an ironic book. It makes me laugh. But like any good satire, he go, wait a second, he's talking about me. Jonah hasn't died. The story isn't over. And God shows him mercy and grace by sending a sea creature to swallow, swallow him and keep him alive. You know, growing up, all I remember about this is the fish. Right? I don't know how much time... Sunday school teachers, listen to me. The story is not about a fish. It's one verse. It's not about a fish. It's about who God is. And God reveals himself in a major way in this song, this psalm that Jonah prays. See, God has a goal, and it's not Jonah's death, but his deliverance. And God doesn't want to kill him, but call him back. And he will use this event to do exactly just that, to call him back to himself. So we see God's protection of this prophet in verses 17 of chapter 1 all the way down to chapter 2, verse 9, as Jonah praises. And in verse 17 it says this, And the Lord appointed a great fish. This wasn't an accident. You notice that? Words are important. So the narrator puts it there for a reason. God appointed the fish. Not only is God sovereign over the storm that threw Jonah into this mess to begin with, he's sovereign over the creatures that live in the storm, in the ocean, in the sea. I guess it's a sea, not an ocean. God is sovereign. And not only is he sovereign over the weather, but he's sovereign over all creation as God appoints this great fish. And what this points to is that God has an amazing power to accomplish his will. Because I've said this before, if God is sovereign, he is sovereign over everything. He's either sovereign over everything or he's not sovereign at all. He's sovereign. He is God. And this is the first two verses. These, first, these are the first of two verses that people really, really, really struggle with. Verse 17. Because how in the world could a big fish swallow a, a man? Right? Think about it. How in the world could that possibly happen? And not only swallow him, but keep him alive. And most people, they, they, they think that this ruins the narrative. 
But this is not a feat for the God who makes the lamb walk in the blind sea and that raises the dead. This is not, this is child's play. He's the one that created the fish and he can do whatever he wants with the fish. And he's choosing to appoint this fish to swallow this rebellious man who continuously rebels against him and save him from his own demise, his own walking down the path of death. See, historically, this actually has happened. I'm not going to focus on this for a bit, but just to make sure that we ruin all the arguments that might be out there, let me focus on this fish. Historically, this actually has happened before. We have accounts of this. Now, the most famous answer to the liberal objections of this episode is of a whaling ship called the Star of the East, which spotted a large sperm whale on February, I got a date, February 1891, a long time ago. The harpoon boats were launched, one of which capsized with two men on board. In time, the whale was killed and drawn into the ship where it was secured and its blubber was removed. The next day, not even that day, the next day, its stomach was hoisted onto the deck. And inside was sailor James Bartley, who was unconscious but alive. After being revived, he resumed his duties aboard the ship. That's a man, by the way. Just saying. There's not a lot of guys like that anymore. But when we come to this, I shouldn't have to say this, because the God who created the heavens and the earth can use a fish or a whale or whatever it is to do this. But it has happened before. But again, the point isn't this fish. The point is how God will use this fish to accomplish his goal. And Jonah is still learning this very hard lesson that for every action he takes, God acts in return. You see that? It's like chess almost. Except he's playing up against the master of everything. Every move he makes, God makes a counter. For the Christian, that seems like bad news is actually good news when it comes to God's people. This is for the Christian. See, God's hand of, of chastisement is ultimately meant for blessing. You see this? God is at work in Jonah's life. He's, he's doing all he can to, to nudge him, to move him back onto a right path or the right relationship with him, which is the blessing. The believer will, become, will sometimes go down into the pit even when they have trusted God. We see this in this prayer. You know, I, I see an example of this as I've been reading through Genesis in my devotional time with, jo- with Jonah, with Joshua, or Joseph, sorry. One of the J words. Here's a guy who was thrown into a pit, sold into slavery. He was thrown into jail. He, all these things. Yet God was sovereign over it all. Orchestrating it. For A, his glory and the good of his people. And we see that in Jonah. And then we see, and Jonah was in the belly for three days and three nights. The feat here isn't the fish. It's the fact that Jonah was alive in somebody's stomach for three days. It takes Jonah three days to pray. This is how stubborn he is. 
Like, for me, I'm like, I'm in the stomach of this thing. I better start figuring something out. I'm like praying right away. No, three days and three nights. God is using this to break him. See, God's goal isn't to kill him, but to bring Jonah back to him and the mission he has called Jonah to. So in verse 1 of chapter 2, we finally see that this, then Jonah prays. Then he prays to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. See, the narrator wants us to focus on his prayer, not the fish. And up to this point, Jonah hasn't been found praying. Remember that? It was the pagans who were praying. It was the pagans crying out to Yahweh, saying, God save us. And Jonah has refused to this whole time. The person of God, a man of God, the man who is supposed to be in the presence of God, proclaiming the goodness and the grace of God, has been refusing to pray to his Savior. So up till this point, that's what's happened. And when God summoned him for his mission to Nineveh, Jonah did not pray to consider the right response. When fleeing to Joppa, Jonah did not pray for guidance. When purchasing passage upon the boats bound to Tarshish, he still did not pray. Nor did Jonah pray when the captain besought him and, and during the great storm. This is not a coincidence. For this path of prayerlessness charted Jonah's descent into folly, rebellion, and ruin. Jonah did not pray because he did not want to talk with God, much less hear from him. You know, I'm reminded about this. I remember my mentor, my friend, for you who are here for my induction service, you met him, his name's Steve. I remember a church was after him a few times, kept asking, hey, would you consider, would you consider... And he kept saying, no, no, I'm good where I am. I'm not done yet. And then someone said, well, why don't you pray about it? Don't ever do that. Don't. Jonah knew that. If you're not willing to make the sacrifice of what God will do, you're going to be just like Jonah and run away. Not that that will stop God from doing what he wants you to do. Jonah prayed. He didn't even want to hear from him. So the question that I have, that I think you may have, is what happens? What is happening in his life that is causing these things to happen? We see this in these next few verses. See, the theme that comes out in, in, in this is similar to what Tim Keller talks about in his book, Disappointment with God, because we've all been there, right? Or sorry, Philip Yancey says this. Philip Yancey explores the experience of an increasing number of people who express their dissatisfaction over God's care. See, a young mother, joyfully faith turned to bitterness after her daughter was born with spinal bifida. She wrote of a ruinous medical bills and and a marriage that broke under the strain of the child's disease. Unlike Jonah, whose situation was caused by his own sin, her life had descended into the abyss simply as a result of this childbirth. Having trusted God, she now wrote of anger and doubts. In another case, a homosexual wrote Yancey to to tell of the hell of his life. For a decade, he 
and more, he had sought the cure for his sexual orientation, involving every manner of treatment, including electric shock. But nothing seemed to work. And finally, that man abandoned himself to perverse promiscuity and the rejection of Christianity. Yet another woman wrote of her ongoing depression. She really had no reason for her depression, but most days she could not think of a single reason to go on living. And she wrote to say that she had pretty much given up on God and doubted that he even cared. So what's happening to Jonah? See, these themes that come out in these stories is is that these people were disappointed with God and that he didn't deliver them from their hard times. You got to think that Jonah would have done the same thing, right? Maybe God was wrong to send Jonah to Nineveh. He picked the wrong guy. And then Jonah running away was in a reasonable reaction, but that's not what we see here as Jonah prays this prayer. Instead, Jonah acknowledges that it was God who had casted him, casted him into the deep. And only God could rescue him. You see, both God's goals in Jonah's life, and Jonah acknowledges it. So we see this prayer is split up into two, four sections here. In the verse 2, it's a summary of that answer. He says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. See, a person going to Sheol was a person who was going to die. They were miserable. Whether they were a righteous person or an unrighteous person. And he cries out in his distress. Jonah thought he was as good as dead. And as he comes to his senses, he sees how God has been keeping him alive and pledges to follow and to worship him near the ends. But in verses 3 to 6, we see the crisis that has come to mind. We see, for you cast me into the deep. Do you see that? Did you catch it? Who casted him there? Who put him there? God. Who did the casting? God put him there. See, Jonah's testimony is uh, God's sovereignty. He recognized God's hand and his, his being thrown into the sea. He makes it really clear that it is God who's doing the judging. The sailors may have hurled me overboard, he says, but they were simply your hands. You, O Lord, have cast me here. These are your waves. These are your billows that now pass over me in judgment. He saw the waves and the breaks that swept over him as belonging to God, tools in his hand. He finally comes to grip with the author of his life. Martin Luther says it this way, Jonah does not say the waves and the billows of the sea went over me, but thy waves and thy billows. Because he felt it in his consciousness that the sea with its waves and billows was the servant of God and his wrath to punish sin. And he continues on, verse 4, I am driven away. The word here is, is, is garash. It's, it's a strong word. It's, it's talking about banishment. Paul, or, uh, Jonah feels like he's been banished away from the presence of the Lord, even though he's been running away from the presence of the Lord. He has been running away from the presence of the Lord, but now he feels himself banished from the Lord's presence. But then he comes along and he says this interesting word. 
In verse 4, right in the middle, he says, Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The word look there, is, it could be uh, physically or, or metaphorically. He, he's thinking, I could see the actual temple, or at least when I die, I will see you. But what's interesting is this yet. It's very similar to another three-letter word, but. Which is, as I said before, my favorite theological word. Because we see this, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Even in the anguish of being away from God's presence, he has hope. And as I was saying, look can be figurative or physical. But as Jonah feels separated from God, he turns right to the place where he has felt God's presence the most, his temple. It is only when the influence of God's word is felt again that Jonah, like believers, are restored to God in repentance. It is the influence of God's word that turns our hearts back to God in prayer instead of away from God on ships bound to Tartars. But his despair even deepens even more. And as I was reading this, I couldn't help but ask, I'm sure we've all felt like that at some point, because he's hopeless. He's broken. And his despair even deepens more. When you listen to the stories of how saints come to know Christ as Savior, it seems that many people were, never ro- or were near rock bottom in their lives when they cried out to God. When you reflect upon how God called you to, your, to himself in your life, it's probably in the midst of brokenness that you realize that God is God. Why is this the case? It is because before we hit rock bottom, we think we can handle being thrown into the sea. Once we actually hit the rough waters and start drowning, once all the things that mask how bad life is are gone, then we are at the place where we must cry out to God or perish. God does this to us so that we will stop lying to ourselves about what is going on in our lives. You know, I remember as I was reflecting upon this, you know, there's a few times in my life, I'm young, so I still got more to go. But there's a few times in my life where I'm just, I cried out to God. More, similar to what he's doing. Now, when we were first married, I was working four jobs. Two of them were in a church, which means it was like crazy. I was coming back from my one job. You know, I think that week I, we were like, we don't have any food in the house. And we're hungry, obviously, because, you know, clearly I eat lots. And we're looking at it going, how do, we're looking at our bank account. I, I think it was $1.98 I had in my bank account. You know what you can buy with that is a thing of pasta and pasta sauce. And I'm driving back from one of my four jobs. I was working afternoons, so I was coming back late. I'm angry. 
And I'm crying out to God. I'm trying to be faithful. And I wasn't always faithful. Sometimes I spent money on things I shouldn't. And I look back at those times, and I think those were the times, actually, that God stretched me the most. See, Jonah is going to a place where the water closes over him to take his life. The deep surrounded me, he says. The weeds were wrapped about my head and the roots of the mountains. He was at the very bottom of the sea. Not only, metaphorically speaking, is he at the rock bottom, but he's actually rock bottom. And he says, he went down to the land where bars closed behind me. He is going down as far as he can go. He cannot go any further. Jonah has, was expressing his feeling of being in the deepest part of the ocean, as far removed from the worlds of human hab- uh, habitat as possible. Any help or hope was completely out of reach for Jonah. You feel like that sometimes? He was as far as it can go. He was going down and down and down. And God uses this to show him that he has no hope of saving himself. No hope at all. There are seemingly... And, and things are seemingly left here. There's nothing left. The strength has been spent. Agony is all that is there. The pain is so deep. You, you can't scream. Or maybe that's all that's left is that you can scream because you can't put to words what you feel in your hearts. But then there's those three wonderful words again. Three letter words. Because there is a rescue. In verse 6, near the end, it says, Yet you brought up my life from the pit. This is the turning point of this prayer. What is impossible for him is not impossible for the Lord. Jonah has descended to the land of the dead, into the pit from which he could not escape, but the Lord is the one who brings him up from the pit. In verse 7, When my life was fainting away, Trial is so severe that his life feels like it's, he's losing grip of it. It's, it's going through his fingers like sand. You can think of someone who has passed out from hunger or injury. They just, there's nothing left. It's those people who have lost all the strength. Have you ever been there before? God, I can't go anymore. There's nothing left. I'm just so sad. It's here where Jonah comes and he says, I remember the Lord. And when we think remember, you've got to think about a situation where you forgot to do something, which I do all the time, but then you remember to do it. There's this thought of accomplishing an action. I forgot to do this. Well, I need to go take the garbage out. So I go do the garbage. And that's what Jonah's doing. He's remembering. And at this point in the midst of his trouble, Jonah remembers the reality of who the Lord is and acts accordingly by crying out to him for help. You know, in the Hebrew, the Lord's name comes first for emphasis. The Lord I remember. 
You know, a few years ago, during that time of trial, there was a song that, that really helped me walk this through. And it says this, When my heart is weary, when my soul is weak, when it seems I can't traverse the trials before me, I survey the glory of your agony, and I find the will to fight for what's before me, because you ran the race enduring for your glory. I fix my eyes on you, the founder and the finisher of our faith. I fix my eyes on you. The solace in your suffering is my strength. And as I fight to follow, you're my righteous guide, and you train me to, to, to delight in all that's holy. Heal my broken body, cure my crooked stride, throw off every weight and sin that clings so closely, and I will run the race enduring for your glory. You help me breathe. You're the only life I need. You died for me. You're the only life I need. And that's what Jonah's doing. In the midst of this agony, he's remembering the Lord. What God is doing here is an amazing thing. See, God was bringing Jonah through all of this to bring him back to himself. And it's through that that God will deliver him. And then we get to this verse 8. He says this, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. The worthless things that can't stick around you would put their hope in things that are, are utterly useless. It's like trying to get out of a hole by grabbing into the air. That's kind of what Jonah is talking about here. They're worthless. They're vain. But only God can save. And then it forsakes their hope for those people who believe in this. But there will be those who reject God as a God who saves. The NIV interprets this as idolaters forfeit their grace from God. We live in a time called common grace. We all experience it. Simple illustration, bacon. Great common grace. It's for, it's for everybody. We live in a time of common grace. I pray that you aren't the one who forsakes God's grace because it will end. In the prayer, his final words, Jonah makes the reason for his thanksgiving and prays abundantly clear, clear because salvation belongs to the Lord. It's because of his great power that he can deliver from trials. It is because of his great mercy that he does so. And this is what makes him worthy of worship and praise. So what? In many places, the Bible talks about how God, like a loving parent, brings strong discipline on his wayward children to direct them back to obedience and then into good, into good paths in which he wants us to walk. Because of this discipline, he brings Jonah to the complete end of his own strength and his ability. Jonah comes to his senses and turns back to God, finally calling out to him for help. This is one of the goals of the Lord's discipline of his children when they disobey. He desires them to turn back to him in obedient faith, walking in paths and thus to closely follow him. We need to remember, what concerns me is when someone claims to be a Christian and they don't feel anything about the life that they're living if it's in rebellion. 
Because God, as we see in Hebrews, disciplines his children whom he loves. If you're not feeling, if you're living in a life that is clearly against what God says, and you're not feeling anything inside, think about it. See, when we look at Jonah's sin, when I look at my sin, because this is what you should be doing when you're at this moment of the sermon, when you look at your sin, every sin, every sin is in need of God's mercy. And it is sometimes those who do not know him that realize this need more quickly, because we see that with the sailors. But Jesus himself emphasizes this in, a, in his parable to the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. Those who compare themselves to others will always find reasons for pride. Those who compare themselves to the Lord will realize their own wickedness and cry out humbly for his mercy and salvation and then extend that same mercy to others. See, God was bringing Jonah through all of this to bring him back to himself. So Jonah received what he did not deserve. You'd think his own spiritual pride would be humbled. He had, mercy, he had received mercy rather than judgment, deliverance instead of death. And this should have changed Jonah profoundly. It should, have changed, it should change us profoundly. What our sin and rebellion earns is death. We see this in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And what God makes available to us in Jesus is life, an undeserved gift of his grace and mercy. Ephesians 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, that was you. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we by nature children of wrath. Whoa, okay, one day we'll get there. We'll preach this. Like the rest of mankind, but God being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one can boast. This should destroy any sense of pride that you have in your life. Utterly decimate. It's like the nuclear bomb. For the Christian, what seems like bad news is actually good news when it comes to God's people. God's hand of chastisement is ultimately, ultimately meant for blessing. Believers will sometimes go down into the pits even when they have trusted God. And Jonah discovers the grace of God in the deep. He too, as a child of God, finds that in the abyss, he finds the saving grace of God. 
God was bringing Jonah through all of this to bring Jonah back to him. And it's through that breaking that God shows Jonah and us that he only saves. Let us continue to worship and to praise our awesome God.